please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what you tell us, ears to hear. We ask that you would reveal to us the meaning of your scripture, which is closed to us apart from your spirit. Lord, help us to have our, our thoughts checked and fixed that we might see things the way you have designed them to be, that we might know more of this great mystery hidden in times past but now revealed to unite all things in Christ. Lord, give us a Christ-centered vision for the world as we read these words that you've given us through the Apostle Paul. I would pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so far in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has been describing the wondrous blessings of the gospel and what Jesus Christ has actually accomplished for us. In chapter 1, he praised God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that led him to pray that we would know those blessings, that we would know what we have when we have Christ, that we would know him more. In chapter 2, Paul described the effect of those blessings on our lives. First, he described our own experience as a resurrection, that we've been raised together with Christ. And then as a reconciliation, that we who were once far off, especially the Gentiles here, have now been brought near. Near to God's people, near to God. Not just brought near, but adopted. Adopted as the children of God, made fellow citizens with all the saints. These are tremendous blessings for us, demonstrating both what Paul calls the surpassing greatness of God's power in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, the surpassing riches of his grace. Both of these, God's power, God's grace, both are surpassing. Both are beyond our ability to even comprehend them. It is for good reason, then, that Paul calls the gospel that he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. So this this leads Paul to pray for us once again, that we might somehow comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of God, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. But right as Paul is is about to pray this prayer, the Holy Spirit guides him to write a bit more about God's eternal purpose for the church. And so it's a good thing, too, because this passage will help us have a a biblical, Christ-centered view of at least three things. A Christ-centered view of suffering, a Christ-centered view of serving God, a Christ-centered view of the church. Those are three things that I'll be focusing on this morning. This is God's word, Ephesians chapter 3, 
verses 1-13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, Paul had just been speaking of the great work of salvation that Christ has accomplished for us in, uh, that God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And he's about to pray in response as our passage begins for this reason. You've seen this phrase earlier. If you look back in chapter one, verse 15, he says, for this reason, and then he goes into a prayer. So he's about to go into a prayer here, but He won't come to that prayer until verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So this entire passage that we're looking at this morning is a a digression. But it's it's central to the message of Ephesians. The Holy Spirit uh, directs him to, to write this, and it's connected to everything that he's been saying so far about the mystery, about God's plan for, for the world through Christ Jesus. So he begins by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. This mention of his service for the sake of the Gentiles is what seems to send him off to elaborate more on his ministry that God has given him to the Gentiles. So this passage about his ministry just comes pouring out of his mouth in one or two sentences just like at the beginning of the letter to Ephesians. He's amazed and excited about this. His pen just won't stop writing. I mean, have you ever received a letter like this? You probably get lots of letters. Nowadays, it's more email or instant message or whatever it is that that people are using these days. But in the days that you receive letters, if you can remember that, Have you ever seen a letter that was anything like this? I mean, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, as soon as he starts, he begins praising God in one of the longest sentences I've ever seen. 
begin to praise God for all the blessings that he's given us. And within the first three chapters, he will have to stop and pray for you twice that we might better know and understand those riches that and that uh, grace that God has given to us. So you can see Paul is excited. He is happy. And why shouldn't he be? Because he knows that God has lavished us. He has lavished us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Grace upon grace. God has demonstrated the surpassing riches of his grace, the surpassing greatness of his power. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. That is something to be excited about. When you were without Christ, without God, having no hope, lost in this world, strangers to the covenants of promise, God reached out to people who never sought him and brought us near, made us fellow citizens with the saints, fellow members of God's household, fellow members of the same body, the children of Abraham. That's something to be excited about. Paul hears about the growth of the church in Ephesus, and he cannot contain himself. We were far off, and God brought us near. And if this doesn't amaze us, too, it's, it's probably because our hearts are so cold, our faith is so weak, and our understanding of it is so small. And that's exactly why Paul was praying that we would grow in our understanding of this, that we would come to truly know the fullness of the amazing blessings that God has given us in Christ, that we might have comfort and that we might praise God as he deserves So Paul is glorifying God for these things and praising God that we Gentiles have been brought near and built up into a temple for God. Not just able to approach the temple, but be made into the temple that we might dwell in Christ, that God might dwell in us, that we might be together with God's people. And this gospel of grace, you see, it never ceased to amaze Paul. He's overflowing with joy about these things. And so we almost forget that Paul is writing this from prison. I, Paul, the prisoner. Isn't that amazing? Paul has been wrongfully imprisoned. He was accused of bringing Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple courts, which he did not. And he ended up having to go for several years away, finally ended up being imprisoned in Rome. He was held for more than two years in Caesarea Maritima. He was shipwrecked while being transported, finally imprisoned in Rome. Unjustly treated, he had escaped conspiracies for his murder along the way. He had escaped disaster on the sea. But instead of complaining, instead of thinking this was a mistake to follow Christ, Paul overflows with joy and gratitude. Not just for the things that he's received, he overflows with joy and gratitude for the things that other people are experiencing, even while he is still in prison. How? 
How can Paul have this attitude? What is his secret to be not just content in every circumstance, but to rejoice? And we can see some of the answer to that question in our passage this morning. First, you see, Paul has a Christ-centered view of his suffering. Paul has written already that Christ is the center of everything. That it was in God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. That Christ is not just the center of history. He is not just the center of God's redemptive plan. That he is the center of everything in Paul's life. Paul cannot think of you without thinking of Christ. He writes people, this person was in Christ before me. This person is in Christ, our brother in Christ. He thinks of his suffering in relationship to Christ. He thinks of eating and drinking and whatever he does in relationship to Christ, that Christ might be preeminent in all things. That is the correct view of everything because everything is made by him. Everything is made for him. Everything leads to him. Christ is the center. You are not. You are close to the center in an amazing way by being united to Christ. But God has made his son to be the firstborn among many brethren. This is his plan. So he sees his his own life in terms of Christ. He would say, for me to live is Christ. He would say, I am no longer, not my own. I have been bought with a price. He would say, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Colossians, he says, when Christ who is our life, is revealed. We also will be revealed with him in glory. He is a Christ-consumed man. And his sufferings are seen in that light. He says he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Rome, which he is. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Emperor Nero, which he is. He says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He recognizes that above the prison guards, above the governors Felix and Festus, above King Agrippa, and far above Nero, and above every name that is to be named in this age and in the one to come, Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven. Jesus Christ is completely sovereign over everything in Paul's life, including Paul's suffering and imprisonment. Brothers and sisters, he is sovereign over all your troubles too. Do you believe that? The same Jesus who has brought you near to God, the same Jesus who has saved you from deadness and sin, the same Jesus who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, the same Jesus who laid down his life for you, This is the very same Jesus who right now reigns over all your joys, all your sorrow, all your sickness, all your persecutions. 
Brothers and sisters, not a single hair can fall from your heads without him knowing. Paul knows this and has transformed his view of suffering. All this grand theology is not something for him that people would merely debate and discuss in ivory towers and academic halls. No, it matters in prison. It matters in the hospital. It matters on your deathbed. It matters when you are suffering. Your Jesus Christ is on the throne, and he rules over all. Oh, that you would know that more. Paul is not just a prisoner of Jesus Christ in that he's a prisoner and he belongs to Jesus Christ, but Jesus has mastered him. He has completely conquered this man and turned this enemy, former enemy, into his missionary and sent him out. And now he is bound everywhere he goes to glorify God and to share the gospel. And he is happier than he's ever been in doing it. You see, Paul also knows that God is using even this imprisonment for good. And he wants us to know it too. At the end of our passage, Paul comes back to this verse, verse 13, and says, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. There's something else that Paul knows too, and that is that in the Bible we have this pattern that suffering must take place first and then glory. He stood before King Agrippa earlier saying, I am saying nothing but what, what Moses and all the prophets said, namely that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory. The Lord Jesus said this very same thing when he, after he rose, walking on the road to Emmaus. He said, O oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and afterwards enter into his glory. In First Peter, as well, Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what's, what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. These were things into which angels longed to look. But this is the pattern suffering, and then glory. The great theologian John Owen said, to the extent that you understand the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, to that extent you understand the scriptures and no more. Suffering and glory. That pattern that we see in Christ Jesus is the pattern. It's the pattern for you too. Paul sees his own suffering in this light. It has, it has transformed his view of suffering. That his suffering would lead for our glory. Paul's suffering would be used for good. It would no doubt encourage them in their suffering and their persecution as well. He was the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. I'm obviously going to speed up because... This would take a long time if I spent this much time on every verse. But this brings me to my second point, that the gospel also transforms our view of 
suffering, a man of Christian service. God had called Paul to be a servant of Christ and the apostle to the Gentiles. And it's a testimony of God's grace that Paul was so completely devoted to Christ. See, from the moment Jesus had met Paul on the road to Damascus until the moment Paul died of martyr's death, he was devoted to serving Christ and to serving the Gentiles. And Paul never felt, it seems, that this was something below him. He always felt a tremendous honor in serving God and the church. Indeed, he was amazed that God would use him for anything at all. You see, there are these two things that always amaze Paul. One is the, the God's gracious work of salvation. That's the message of the gospel. But another example of God's grace that always amazed him was how God graciously called him into his service. You see, in verse 2, Paul describes his ministry as a stewardship of God's grace which was given to him. He doesn't boast in his gift, but he realizes that gifts are just that, gifts. Not something that he's earned, not something that he can boast in. They are given to us, and God has given all of you gifts who are in Christ Jesus on this condition that they be used for the church. They're not given for you. They're given for the people around you. It's another way that God has made for us to be brought together in love. Now, in verse 7, Paul comes back to this gift, which he explicitly calls the gift of God's grace, which was given to him. He repeats it here because he's so amazed by it. And then he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He, he can hardly believe it as he writes this letter that God has so blessed him. You know, he actually makes up a word in Greek to, to express his unworthiness. He combines a comparative word with a superlative. He calls himself leaster, the lesser than the least. And you can't be lesser than the least. But that's how he views himself. That's how he thinks of himself. After all, he persecuted God's people. He led the charge in persecuting Jesus, and yet God had mercy on him. He changed him and called him into his service and trusted him with this great message about the unfathomable riches of Christ. God had graciously called a persecutor to reveal a mystery that had been hidden in ages past. And he would use Paul as in a special role to reconcile the world to himself in Christ. Now we consider it an honor when a human president or human king would call us into their service. How much more amazed should we be that the king of kings has called us, us of all people? There was nothing great about us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were just like the rest of the world when God brought us, called us by name. Who are we to serve the Lord? You know, it wasn't simply Paul who fought against the Lord. You did too. We were rebels by nature, far from God, dead in sin, children of wrath, 
And yet God saves us and calls us with this high calling, gave us gifts that we might serve one another. And that, that is a great honor for us. So we, like Paul, ought not to boast in God's gracious gifts that have been given to us, but be humbled by it, to use them gladly for God's people with thankfulness that God has graciously made us useful in his kingdom. So the gospel transforms our view of suffering. It also transforms our view of service, makes it an honor and a joy to serve one another. To think The Lord Jesus did not consider it below him to wash our feet. The Lord Jesus was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. There's the suffering and glory again. But that puts our suffering, our service, in another light. Finally, the gospel transforms our view of the church. This is at the heart of the mystery that Paul has been called to reveal. The word mystery, you see, shows up again and again in our passage. It doesn't mean a puzzle to be solved. It is something public that is revealed, but that was hidden in times past, hidden from generations earlier. There were hints of it all throughout when God brought people who are outside of the covenant family into and consider them part of his own people. Job, Melchizedek, Rahab the harlot, Uriah the Hittite. All these people God brings into Israel, trickling in over time, but now the floodgates have opened. This mystery is, he says in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's three verbs here in the Greek. I hate to bring up Greek, but it jumps out at you if you were a Greek reader um, that he's putting this, this prefix on the verb. It means together with. It's like sin, like synagogue, synchronized swimming, you know, it's together with. And he puts it on all three verbs. This is the, this is the seventh, eighth, and ninth time that he's done this in this epistle. And he's showing us the connectedness of it all in it. Earlier he had said in chapter two that you were made alive together with, the same thing, with Christ, that you were raised together with Christ, that you are seated together with Christ. And then he talks about that togetherness with the church, that you are fellow members of the body together with the Jews, that you are heirs of the same promise together with the Jews, that you are being built up into a a temple together with the Jews. Now here, again, you are heirs together with, members of the body together with, partakers of the same promise together with. Some of these words didn't even exist in Greek before. He's having to make up new vocabulary to express what God has done. And it jumps out at you here. This is a key verse in our passage, verse 6, that the Gentiles have been brought together. It flows from us being brought together with Christ. You've been brought together with Christ. 
they are brought together with Christ. Therefore, we are brought together as a people. Not only this, God is also uniting in his plan heaven and earth in Christ. Christ Jesus is the heavenly man, the man from heaven. He has come down and he is God and he is man together. What does this mean for humanity? What does it mean for creation? The hope that it gives us that God would so identify himself with creation, that he would so identify himself with man, that every time God looks at man, he has to remember, my own son is a man. What hope that gives us as a people. And and in this way, to reveal this mystery hidden in ages past, so that through, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is he talking about here? This is his plan, was that through us, through the weak, through the rebels, he would show his grace and his manifold wisdom to angels, perhaps even evil authorities in the heavenly places. I'm not totally sure what's going on in verse 10. It's beyond God's plan is is more than just you. It's more than just you. It's bigger than we think. It's like when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he did it because the sins of the Amorites have now been complete, as he had promised to Abraham. He did it to show his glory to the Egyptians. He did it to fulfill his covenant promises. There's multiple things going on in God's plan, and it's bigger than just us. God, this God's plan is like this big wedding cake, and at the at the top of the wedding cake, you know what's there? The little man. It's Jesus. But there's someone else right next to him. The bride. We don't really deserve to be there, but somehow we've been brought together with Christ. Christ is the center, but somehow we are united to him too. How glorious is that? That he considers us his bride. It's a mystery that he'll get back to in chapter 5 when he talks about marriage. But he says he's talking about Christ and the church. Who are we, really, to have this honor? And it shows us the connectedness of it all, of God's people. There's often a view that the Jews are one people, and then God decided to abandon that plan for a while and make the Gentiles into a church, a different people. There's no way to read this passage and get that. We are one people. We are engrafted into the same vine. We are fellow citizens. We are fellow heirs. We are the children of Abraham. We are members of the same body. We are one church, and that is the mystery it, that it was amazing to the Jews, amazing to Paul, amazing to the Gentiles. There are not two peoples of God, but one people of God. We ruined this world by sin. God's plan that Paul preached was to send his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, suffered our curses to redeem us. 
So God is now putting everything back together again, better than it ever had been, and presents us to God as members of his body, fellow heirs with Christ. And the church is where this wisdom of God's eternal plan is displayed. Creation is itself the theater of God's glory. The church is the theater of God's wisdom displayed throughout the world. It's where unity, real unity, actually occurs. And you see how close this unity is to God's heart. The world longs for it, but we have it in the church greater than any nation, any king, any treaty could ever hope to accomplish. We are united together in the spirit, united to God's only son, like stones in a temple, like members of a body. The church, you see, is at the center of God's plan. It's right there in the center of his story. Shouldn't it be the center of our lives too? Isn't this amazing? Christ Jesus loved the church, gave himself for the church. Paul loved the church and gave himself for the church. You love the church, don't you? Will you give yourself for the church? Brothers and sisters, I hope this amazes you and humbles you. What happens here in the church is more important than any accomplishment of any nation. Who are we? We are of little, little to no importance in the eyes of the world, in the story of history. And yet God calls us his children, calls us the light of the world. I hope, brothers and sisters, that you, like Paul, glorify God for honoring us and graciously calling us into his service. I pray that you would have a Christ-centered view of your suffering that you are going through now or that you will go through. And I hope that you would grow in your knowledge of God's call and his glorious inheritance in the saints. For you, amazingly, are God's treasured possession. Let us, like Paul, live for him and lay down our lives for one another. Lord, we ask that you would give us an excitement about your plan, about our place in your plan, excitement that we are yours, that Jesus Christ is not ashamed somehow to call us his brethren, his brothers and sisters. Lord, we ask that you would help us to prioritize you in our life as center and your bride as a central part in your plan. Lord, help us not to go back to our lives this week without being changed by what you reveal to us in Scripture about your plan for the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.